Well, hey, good morning. How's everyone doing? Good? Good? Awesome. Well, great to be here in church this morning, isn't it? On a, it's fall now. We can call it fall. I think fall technically starts. Not yet? Oh, man. The 9 a.m. is like so opposed to it being fall. Some of us are sad about summer ending, but I'm, I'm personally happy about fall. You know, we got sweater weather. Like I wore a sweatshirt to church this morning. Love it. Pumpkin spice, if that's your thing. Pumpkin spice people in the house? Where are you at? They're not as passionate as the summer people. And um, here's the best reason it's fall, because ministries here at our church are kicking back off, right? That's right, we're excited about that. Ladies Bible study is going, small groups have started, high school ministry kicked off tonight, 6.30 p.m. at Grand Haven Campus, plug. Middle school ministry Tuesday night at 6.30 at the Grand Haven Campus. Uh, so many things that are happening and, and hope that you're a part of what God's doing here. Um, Fall's the best, but we're not here to talk about fall. We're here to open our Bibles. So you can open your Bible to Matthew 21. And if you don't have a Bible with you, our ushers are coming forward. Just lift your hand, and they'll get a copy of God's Word into your hands so you can follow along with us. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, you can go ahead and keep this copy that the ushers give to you. So next weekend, we're kicking off um, our fall series in our services. We're going through the book of Hebrews, and I'm really excited about that. But that means this week, we're wrapping up a series we've been going through all summer, we've been looking at parables of Jesus. And parables are simple stories that Jesus told uh, with an illustration uh, in order to confront people's hearts. And that's absolutely what he's doing in, in this parable as well today. The parable we're going we're to be looking at is called the parable of the wicked tenants. Kind of a strange name, isn't it? We're not talking about the Wizard of Oz musical. We're not talking about the sport with the yellow ball. Wicked tenants. And so we're going to understand what exactly that means, because I'm, I'm going to say the word tenants more than I ever have in my life this morning, and, and hopefully you'll hear that word a lot. But um, like every parable, Jesus is absolutely confronting the hearts of people, and I hope that your heart is confronted this morning, and the idea that he wants to confront is this idea that our hearts are prone to reject God's authority, and our hearts are just prone to reject authority in general, aren't they? You know how I know this? Because I know my heart. Um, Sam and I, my wife, we were in New York City just the other weekend to celebrate our fifth anniversary. And um, pretty awesome, right? Five years. That's a milestone. And <laughs> thank you. <laughs> you guys are like, we've been married for way longer than that. What are you proud of? But we were, in, we were in New York City, and we had the chance to go see a Broadway show. And we went to go see To Kill a Mockingbird. Classic story. Gotta love Atticus Finch. Uh, starring Jeff Daniels. He's great, Michigan native. But anyways, uh, we went to go see the show and we were in the standing room section, standing only. And that may sound like a drag to you, standing for three hours for a Broadway uh, play, but it was actually amazing. I'd highly recommend it. Um, super cheap way to see Broadway and so worth it. And so what that meant, being in the standing only section, was that we were right next to the aisle in the back, next to the ushers. And if you couldn't guess it, a Broadway usher takes his job really seriously and like thinks that he has a lot of authority. And so this usher in particular right next to us, man, he was on a power trip and, and loved to tell people when they came back when they could and could not go to their seats. So there was intermission, you know, everyone gets up and leaves, there's a break, and everyone else is, is leaving to go stand because they've been sitting for an hour and a half. We go and sit in seats because we've been standing for an hour and a half. Um, and then the intermission ended and some people weren't back to their seats. And so the show is going, and when people would come, this usher's like, no, you need to wait here until I tell you you can go to your seat. And he would wait till there was a moment uh, of like laughing or a scene change, and then he would let them go. So this one young girl walks up to the aisle right next to us, and 
The usher's not there. The usher's like off on the other side doing something else. And so she looks over to me like, are you the usher? Can I go? Because of course I was wearing all black, so I passed for an usher. <laughs> and, and I'm like, I don't know if you can go. So I'm kind of just like looking around. I'm like, where's the usher guy? And so in a moment of just sheer rebellion and pure comedy, I'm like, go, go. You got to go right now. Go for it. And so she starts sprinting up the aisle. <laughs> And the usher's like, no, miss, miss, somehow thinking his yelling is less distracting than her just going to her seat. And her seat is like right in the middle of the middle section. And it was just fantastic. <laughs> and me and Sam were just uncontrollably giggly for like the next 10 minutes. We're just like, ha, we rejected authority. So, <laughs> so yes, our hearts are predisposed to reject authority. And we're going to see today to reject God's authority. So, but to better understand just the, the meaning of this parable and the, the meaning of Matthew 21, we need to look at the context to get a better, better picture of where this is at in Jesus' ministry and Jesus' life. So here in Matthew 21, Jesus is establishing his authority as the son of God, as the savior, as the king of the kingdom, bringing the kingdom to earth. He's establishing his authority. And this is just the beginning of the, what's called the Holy Week, the beginning of where we know at the end of the week he's going to die on the cross. And so the beginning of the week in Matthew 21, we see him enter Jerusalem, right? Riding on a donkey to a parade of palm branches and people praising him, like establishing his authority. Then the next day he goes to the temple and cleanses it out of solicitors and he says, hey, you got to get out of here. This is my house. My house is a house of prayer saying, hey, this is my kingdom. I'm the king establishing his authority. Then the next day he comes back to the temple and, and, and to continue to establish his authority when the, the high priests of the temple question his authority. And we see this in verse 23 of Matthew 21. It says, when Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, why then do you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You're not going to tell me your secret. I'm not going to tell you my secret. And so we see the Pharisees and the high priest, they see Jesus as a threat on their own authority, challenging their position. We don't like that, do we? When, when someone comes along and where we have a place of authority and tries to exert their own authority. I know that's true of my heart. Uh, Mark Sayers, he's a pastor and cultural commentator from Australia. And he has a podcast with another pastor, John Mark Comer, that's called This Cult Cultural Moment. And it's a really great podcast that just talks about our culture and our world today, dissecting the heart. And, and they say that this time that we live in, that it's called a, a post-Christian world. That we're living in a time where society is no longer majority Christian. And we know that to be true. And on this podcast, a number of times, they come back to this great quote from Mark Sayers. And this is what he says. Today, we want the kingdom without the king. That today we believe that we can just make the world a better place 
a utopia where everyone is, uh, has equal rights and, and can do what they want and is happy and is healthy and is successful. And we can do all these things without any sort of authority of a God or a higher power or a creator. And we see this, that this in Israel, right? That they want their own kingdom without the king. And for the chief priests and Pharisees, but this is for us today too, that we want this. That we want the kingdom without the king. So our big idea today is that there is no kingdom. There's no kingdom without the king. We want the kingdom without the king, but there's no kingdom without the king. And we're going to see this in the parable of the wicked tenants in Matthew 21 in just a moment. So let's read this whole parable, and then we'll break it down into three ways that we want the kingdom without the king. Read with me in verse 33. Jesus said, hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. When the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to Jesus, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So in this parable, we see a few characters. The first character that we see is the master, the owner of the vineyard. And we know that the owner is God. God is the owner of this vineyard. Then the, the second set of characters we see are the servants. And the servants are prophets in the Old Testament. John the Baptist, they're, they're prophets who came to bring the word of the Lord, bring a message, bring a warning to repent and to, for the people to bear fruit. And then the tenants, the tenants are ultimately the nation of Israel, who rejected these prophets, then uh, the, the high priests and the Pharisees who were currently rejecting the son Jesus. But ultimately the tenants are us. The tenants are you and me. That we are the ones who are tenants and renters and live in this world that is owned by God. And tenants, just like this parable tells us, exist to bear fruit for the owner. That you and me, when we were created, that humans exist to bear fruit for our creator. And we see this all the way back in Genesis 2. Read this on the screen. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The, the moment man was created, and this is before the fall of man. So, you know, sometimes people will say, like, well, work is a result of sin. No, no, no. God made us to work. That's how we are created, to produce and to work the land, to keep it, to preserve the land. We were called to bear fruit, but not just in like an agricultural, productive um, sense, but also in a spiritual sense. 
And there's so many verses I could go to that talk about this idea of bearing fruit as far as the way that we live and our character and our hearts for the Lord. But Colossians 1.10 is a good example of this. Paul said, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That humans, we exist to bear fruit for our creator. And this language of bearing fruit is all throughout the Bible to talk about both working and work ethic, but also living in a way that is honorable and is worthy of our creator. But the problem is, is that we confuse our purpose of bearing fruit Instead, our purpose being to succeed, because those things are similar, bearing fruit, producing the way that we live, and then success, but we blur bearing fruit for succeeding at any cost, whatever it takes. And so as we talk about three ways we want the kingdom without the king, the first way is succeed at any cost. We want the kingdom without the king by pursuing success no matter what it costs us. And we see that in the parable with the, the tenants, the tenants who want success, they want to bear the fruit and keep it even at the cost of killing the servants and killing the son of their master. That whatever it takes, they want success. Isn't this the American dream? Life and the pursuit of happiness. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That we believe that our purpose is to pursue success, whatever it takes. Even if it means uh, a bankruptcy or death, in the process. But the problem is, is that we confuse that as a good thing. But succeeding at cost, that's not what we were made for. That's not, that's not a good thing. Sometimes we look at uh, successes in the world or entrepreneurs and we're like, that's incredible, the success that they've had. But we don't realize the cost of those successes until we hear like a, a, a story that pulls on our heartstrings that shows us how corporations and capitalism is evil, Right? And one example that I thought of this is a movie that came out a few years ago called The Founder. Has anyone seen this movie, The Founder? If you haven't, I'm sorry, I'm about to ruin this movie for you. But it's okay, because it's a familiar story about the corporation we know as McDonald's. It's the story of McDonald's success and this man, Ray Kroc, who really built the kingdom that is McDonald's. And so Ray, Ray Kroc, uh, first, McDonald's starts before then. McDonald's began as a one-location restaurant in Southern California run by these brothers with the last name McDonald's. And these guys were amazing. They just believed in, let's have a restaurant that uh, has good quality food, it's fast, it's cheap. And Ray Kroc, he was a milkshake machine salesman. And so he came to the McDonald brothers to sell them milkshake machines. And in eating at their restaurant, he was so impressed by the speed and the, the, how cheap it was and the quality of the food and how good it was. And he was like, man, we need to put McDonald's all over America. And so he convinced these brothers that it was a good idea, that Ray could do it, and that they would all get rich as a result of it. And so if, if we know the end of the story, don't we? Today, I would say that McDonald's is pretty successful. Like, you can't drive more than 10 minutes without seeing a McDonald's. We all eat there, even if we're ashamed of eating there. That's okay. <laughs> and McDonald's is a success. But what was the cost of that success? That we can look at Ray's story and see the cost. That first and foremost, when he took it over and wanted to expand, for the sake of expansion, he compromised on the quality of the food. I know it's hard to believe, but McDonald's started with quality as a value of their product. <laughs> But Ray compromised that. That was the cost for success and expansion. That, that beyond that, uh, Ray, one of his franchise owners in the Midwest, 
he met this guy, met his family, and left his wife for the franchise owner's wife. And so he wrecked his marriage and his family and wrecked another family. There was a cost for his success. And then beyond that, he eventually cut the McDonald brothers out of the business entirely, paying them off, but, but really uh, making them lose out on hundreds of millions of dollars. That success comes at a cost for other people. And even for Ray himself, who's, who seems like this big successful entrepreneur, that he battled addiction to alcohol and depression and just being miserable, he battled bankruptcy many times throughout his life. And we, we can look at McDonald's and say, man, what a successful company. What a successful business. But success comes at the cost of ourselves, of our soul, of other people. And this isn't just an entrepreneurial thing. This isn't just the tenants in a parable thing. This is you and me. And so I want you even to think for yourself. What's the cost of the success that you're pursuing in your life? What, what people are you cutting out for the sake of your success? What relationships are you sacrificing for the sake of your success? What corners are you cutting in order to get what you want? That when we want the kingdom without the king, there's a cost, and, and we're willing to bite that cost. James 4 talks about this idea that we pursue success at any cost. In James 4, 1, it says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Man, that sounds just like the parable of the tenants, that we want what we want, and so we do whatever it takes to get it because we want our kingdom without the king. The second way that we want the kingdom without the king is take credit for what isn't mine. We take credit for what isn't mine. You can look back at verse 33. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Do you see it in that verse there? That there's five different verbs that talk about what the owner does, the action of the owner. That he owns the vineyard, that he built the vineyard, he put a fence around it, he dug a wine press, he built the tower, and then he leased it to the tenants. Like, he did all the work to make this vineyard ready to bear fruit. And then in the next verse, we see when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And, and we see the tenants hurt and kill and reject giving fruit to the owner. They're like, no, 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 this is my fruit. I work to bear this fruit. This is my land. This is my kingdom. They're taking credit for what isn't theirs. And then in verse 37, we see it culminate. It says, finally, the owner sent the son saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. Taking credit for what isn't theirs. And we can look at this parable and think, man, that's such an extreme picture of what it looks like to take credit for what isn't theirs. But we do the same. That again, at any cost, whatever it takes, we want to get what we want and to claim it as our own. That as tenants, we blur the purpose. We exist to bear fruit, but instead, we pursue success at any cost. And we forget our position, that we're not the owner. We're the tenant, but we want to be the owner. We want to be the king of our kingdom. I heard it said this way in a commentary, that the tenants hated the owner and the son because he challenged their ownership of the field. 
The tenants act as if the vineyard belongs to them, and we do the same thing. We believe that we own our lives, that we are in charge, that we're on the throne, that we're the kings of our kingdoms. And so we take credit saying, this is mine, I control it, I'll do with it what I want. We forget our position as the tenant, not the owner. Airbnb is a a growing website, a company where people can go and list their condos and apartments and houses for rent because people apparently would rather stay in those than in a hotel. Me personally, I'd rather stay in a hotel, but you know, there's some people who are like, I'd rather rent one room within a house while other people are there. Seems kind of strange, but Airbnb, they're gone. This is their concept. You can rent a room up to an entire house. And so a woman named Corey rented out her home in California to offset the cost of growing mortgage payments. And so a man came named Maxim who applied to rent her home for 44 days because he said he had extended business. And so he booked the rental and he paid 30 days up front. And everything was great. He came and he went into the rental. He started his work trip and everything was normal and great until it wasn't normal and great because the the time came for his payment for the last 14 days was due, and what did he do? Not pay it. And then when Corey reached out to him and was like, hey man, you gotta pay for your last 14 days, there started to be this weird text exchange and, and he was like erratic behavior and she was like, where did this come from? And so on the, on the day, uh, the last day of his rental, Corey sent him this text, you can see it on the screen. It says, Maxim slash Maxim's brother, Your reservation contract is up today, July 8th at 12 noon. This is also a 24-hour courtesy notice that the power slash electricity will be shut off tomorrow, July 9th. I hope that you will check out peacefully today without the need for the authorities to get involved. You can only imagine what's coming next. So Maxim responds, hi, Corey, this is Maxim. I've consulted my attorney. As I said multiple times already, I am legally occupying the domicile. My nature of work from home is dependent on having electricity, and my income while working averages $1,000 to $7,000 per day, involving over 2,000 customers in the U.S. alone. If the electricity gets cut off, I will be losing money every day. I'm pressing charges for blackmail and damages caused by your negligence and malicious misconduct, including $3,800 PID espresso machine, as well as medical bills for my brother's hospital visit after he got sick here drinking unfiltered tap water, parentheses, ulcer. Not only what you do is illegal, it is also extremely discriminatory in nature and has caused me and my brother a lot of stress and suffering. Poor guy. (laughs) All he wanted was an Airbnb. And so Corey hired a lawyer and discovered that in California, once a person has paid for 30 days rent on a property, they're considered a tenant of that place on a month-to-month basis. And so in order to get them out, you have to go through the whole eviction process, which can take up to three to six months and can cost three to $6,000 in legal fees. The police couldn't do anything. Isn't that crazy? It's insane. Poor Corey, we should pray for her right now. But truthfully, is this not us in the way that we view our lives? That God is the owner of our lives. God is the owner of this kingdom. But we want to stake our claim and say, no, 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 this is mine. I'm living here. I'm in control. I'm staying. I'm going to have my way. God is the owner of this world, and God is the owner and the master and the king of your life. And so I just thought of a few areas of our lives, I know for me, and I I would would think for you too, that we struggle to view ourselves as the owner when we're really just the tenants 
Or God's word says it another way. We're called to be stewards of what God gives to us. That whether it's our money and the way that we spend our money, the way that we save, the way that we invest, the things that we buy, our possessions, our homes, our cars, our phones, our computers, our clothes, our sneakers, our Wi-Fi access, our jobs, our careers, our raises, our transfers, our hires, our relationships, our friends, our spouses, our children, our siblings, our parents, that we view these things that we're in control over, that we own, that we can do with them what we want. But God is the owner, and we're just the tenants. We're just renting. You and me, we're just the guy in the Airbnb. And we need to know our place. That Romans 11 says it this way. It says, Who has given a gift to God that it might be repaid? For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Isn't that what we just sang earlier in that song? That at every loss and victory, my soul will rise to only bring you glory. That we, we take credit for those things. We're the owner, but it's not ours. We're just stewards and, and tenants. And so we want to succeed and have a good life at any cost. We want to take credit for our lives and be the kings of our kingdoms. And so the final result of that, the third way we want the kingdom without the king, is we disregard God's authority. And this is what the high priests and Pharisees were doing. They were rejecting Jesus' authority and his claim that he was God, that he was the son of God. And as I mentioned earlier in my story earlier, each and every one of us, we are prone in our hearts to disregard and reject authority because our hearts are sinful. God says our hearts are wicked, that we're born with these hearts to disregard God's authority. Uh, Again, the book of Romans in chapter 8, it says it this way, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That if we don't make Jesus the king and the authority in our lives, we are predisposed to not submit and to reject and to be hostile towards his claim of authority in our life. And what's even crazier in this story is that Jesus, when he talks about the son that was sent and then was killed by the tenants, we know this, that he is predicting what the high priest would do to him. The exact people he's telling the story to are the people who two days later would arrest him and kill him. And so he's telling them this story. But the problem is that sometimes we look at this story as like Jesus preaching condemnation to these people and telling them what they're going to do in just a few days. But really what Jesus is doing here with this parable, again, he's confronting their hearts and he's trying to give them a chance and an opportunity to recognize his authority and to submit to him as king. Let's see this in verse 40, how the rest of the story wraps up. It says, When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls in this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. That sounds intense, doesn't it? it sounds harsh. It sounds like judgment. But the truth is, is what Jesus is saying here is filled with intensity. 
but it is also filled with grace and patience and hope and presenting the opportunity for even then the high priest to submit to him as Lord and King. This is an opportunity. And I know this to be true because if we just look a few days later when Jesus is hanging on the cross, what does he pray? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That Jesus' heart is a heart of patience and grace and there is intensity and truth and a hard word being spoken, but it is not lacking with patience and grace. It's a lot like disciplining a toddler. My son is turning uh, two years old in November and we're just in the throes of like discipline. So if you've made it past this stage, good for you, congratulations, I'm jealous. Or if you have teenagers, I'm not jealous of you, we'll get there, we deal with that enough. But here we are as a toddler and we're kind of at the beginning stages of Shepherd understanding what is right and what is wrong, what he should do and what he shouldn't do. And he's a really sweet boy and and it's honestly a gift to be able to walk through this process. But if you have a toddler or you know a toddler, you, you know this, that there's a moment where in Shepherd's heart and in his mind, he has decided that he's gonna do what he knows he shouldn't do. And so he looks over to mom or dad, make eye contact, looks at the thing he wants to do and looks back and mom or dad are like, Shepherd, don't do it. Looks back and forth, steps closer to the thing he knows he's not supposed to do. Shepherd, don't do it. Looks back and forth, goes a little closer. Shepherd, don't do it. And this is the, the game that we play until eventually he makes the choice to do the thing or to not do the thing. And intensity is going to rise a little bit, isn't it? But as intensity rises, our heart does not change as one patience and grace, and extending the opportunity for Shepherd to do what's right and to submit to our authority. Now, I know that sometimes the keeping the patience and grace thing, that's, that's a little hard, but I know that that's God's heart, and he is perfect in doing that, that as his intensity and urgency and message of warning rises, his heart does not change of one that is patient and gracious and extending the opportunity even to his greatest enemies who had put him on the cross. And that's you and me. You and me, God's word says that we are enemies of God. But I hope that you hear this message. You know, it's easy to hear this message and find it heavy-handed or feel discouraged or to feel like you're not good enough. But I hope that you wouldn't feel that way, but instead you would recognize this as an opportunity. As an opportunity to recognize where in your life you are trying to rule your own kingdom and rejecting God's authority and instead to come back and recognize that Jesus is the king of this world and our lives and to put ourselves beneath his rule, believing that we will receive the promise of the kingdom. This is an opportunity. And so for the rest of our time, we're going to look to how we live with Jesus as king and see this opportunity, see the steps that we can take and the change that we can make to put ourselves under his authority. And so the first step to live with Jesus as king is I must soften my heart. I must soften my heart. And we see this story end with the high priest ignoring the voice of conviction. Read in verse 45, it says, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was talking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So like Jesus is talking about us, a moment of conviction. But we want to arrest him, harden our hearts. We're not going to do it now because people are around and they think that he's cool, but we're going to wait to arrest him, harden their heart further. Do you see that? Just the response to conviction, to cover it up. 
and again, I would just, if you feel anything, if, you, if God's moving in your heart, if there's some conviction, if there's a sense of like a weight, that you would press into that. That if you feel even an ounce of conviction, that you would even now just pray in your head, God, you're doing something, you're speaking something, you're moving and stirring in my heart. Please speak to me and show me what I need to do. Show me how to change and just press into that conviction. That's what it looks like to soften our hearts. Not unlike the Pharisees, their story ends with them hardening their hearts and, and continuing in their predisposed notion to reject God's authority. But your story and your day today does not need to end with you walking out of this place and ignoring the conviction and ignoring God's authority and desire to rule over your life. And if you have a moment, uh, even an ounce of conviction, just press into that because don't cover it up because this is an opportunity. You know, sometimes we respond to conviction by covering it up in a few ways. The one way that we would respond to conviction wrongly and cover it up would be condemnation, that we have a moment of conviction and recognizing our wrong and recognizing our sin and that we would just feel bad about ourselves and heap on guilt and shame. I'm the worst, I'm not good enough. I know I'm, I'm the worst sinner and, and there's nothing I can do about it. I've tried, I've tried, I've tried and just heap on condemnation and we'll just walk out of this place covering that conviction and being like, I know it's there, but I'm just gonna mess up again, so just cover it. And another way that we would cover it would be moment of conviction. I know that I'm a sinner. I see that I'm rejecting the Lord and to compare ourselves and to cover it up in that way. Like, man, I'm not, I'm not as bad as the Pharisees. They killed Jesus on the cross. That's crazy. I may have sinned, but it's not as bad. Or, man, I'm, I'm a sinner, but my spouse is way bigger of a sinner and their, their sin needs to be dealt with. Or man, when I came into church, that couple that's sitting in front of me, they were like fighting and their kids were crazy and I'm not as bad as them. But that's not the right way to respond to conviction. That conviction isn't what's wrong with the Pharisees? What's wrong with the world today? How could they not view that as sin? How could they let that be legal? Conviction is not what's wrong with the previous generation. All of our issues and our sin is because of them. Conviction is not what's wrong with any of those things. Conviction is what's wrong with me. This is my sinful, rebellious heart. And if God is moving in your heart and there's some conviction, press into that. Don't cover it up with condemnation or comparison. Because when we cover up our conviction, it's a lot like a middle schooler with a bottle of Axe. I know you guys, I know you're, I know you're tracking with me. It's like, oh man, I'm in the depth of puberty and I smell terrible. Hair is growing in my armpits and along with that hair, there's this nasty smell. And rather than jump in the shower and wash away the germs and the disgustingness, I'm just going to take this nice bottle of Axe and just cover up the stench. <laughs> I think that this, the, the middle school girls must love this and think I'm so cool and attractive. For some reason, my parents don't want to buy it for me, but it's the best. And I know it's silly, but that's truly what we do. That We have conviction and we cover it up, cover up the stench of our sin. And if you're feeling that conviction God is stirring in your heart, press in, don't cover it up. Because the next step to live with Jesus as king, we soften our heart, then establish Jesus as authority. One of my favorite verses, Romans 10, 9, is so simple when it talks about salvation and Jesus as the Lord and Savior of our life. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead, you will be saved. Isn't that awesome how simple salvation is? And I would just encourage you, if you're sitting in the room today and you have not received Jesus as your savior to pay for and forgive your sins and give you the promise of eternal life, that you would make that choice right now. This is an opportunity. 
but also there are a lot of us in the room. Maybe you've at one point in time or many points in time prayed a prayer or taken a step to make Jesus your savior, but you've not made him the Lord of your life, that he might be a ticket to heaven, that you might think like, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. I got heaven. We're good. But believing in Jesus as savior also means that Jesus is the Lord of our life. The way that we live today, the things that we say, the way that we act, the things that we think, is Jesus the Lord of those things? And so if you are in the room and you're like, I'm good, I'm already saved, I would just challenge you even to think a step further. Where in my life is Jesus not the Lord, not the authority over my kingdom? And the third thing, to live with Jesus as king, is to fight for an eternal perspective. Right, that we see these tenants, they're only thinking about now. They're only thinking about their kingdom. They're only thinking about their success and the fruit that they're bearing. And sometimes we can, we can be so focused on this life and what we want to get out of it that we fail to think about eternity. That God's word multiple places says this life is fleeting. This life is short. This life is temporary. Paul says this life is a tent and heaven, eternity, is our home. This life is a glimpse but eternity is forever. And you know, I can think of a lot of people who just embody this idea of living life with an eternal perspective, understanding that this temporary life, they want it to be ruled and to be lived with eternity in mind, knowing that all of us are going one place or another, we're going to heaven or hell. And also the way that we live now matters. And there's so many people I can think of who embody this in their workplaces, living with eternal perspective, with their families, with their ministry, with their finances, the way that they handle trials, the way that they endure with eternity in mind and using it as an example for the gospel. But one person that came to my mind this week as I was thinking about people who live with an eternal perspective is a student who graduated uh, from high school here in our church just a year ago. And her name's Chloe Roberts. And, and Chloe is an awesome young girl. She was actually in my wife Sam's small group and we just had an opportunity to have a front row seat to God working in her life. When she started coming here to our church as a sophomore in high school, or I think it was maybe even a junior, that she came and she was here, but, but she knew and we knew that she was just living the typical high school life, just living for parties and living for almost what we expect high schoolers to do. But then she saw the hopelessness of that, the emptiness of that, how it was dissatisfying, and she gave her life to Jesus, not just as Savior, as Lord. And she really committed herself to the Lord, to the church, to living with an eternal perspective. And then uh, in the spring of her senior year, she came with us on a mission trip to Tijuana, Mexico. And then in serving there, she just fell in love with the place and saw the need for children and people in that community to receive the love of Jesus. And so when she graduated high school, she actually went back down to that area in Mexico and has been living there since, serving the people of Mexico. And she actually works in children's homes, children's homes for a while. She was actually kind of leading one of the children's homes. Could you just imagine that there's a 19-year-old from West Michigan who is living in Mexico, not because it's a vacation spot or glamorous, because it is far from that, but because she wants to live her life with internal perspective recognizing that there are children without a home, without a family, who need the love and the message and the hope that is found in Jesus. It's such an awesome story of God working. And I'm not saying that you need to go to another country and to serve as a missionary in order to live with an eternal perspective. 
that's an awesome way to do it, but there's practical ways that we can do this in our workplaces, in our lives, with our families, just living with an eternal perspective. Are we doing that? What kingdom are you living for? Who's the king of your life? And as we come to the kind of end of this list, how to live for Jesus, maybe you're sitting there and you're like, man, I'm 0 for 3. My heart has not been soft. And right now, honestly, my heart is hardening a little bit because I'm just, you know, conviction covering it up. And I'm not establishing Jesus. I recognize there's so many ways in my life that Jesus is not the Lord of my life. And I recognize how day to day I just live with such an earthly perspective, not eternal. Again, I just pray that this wouldn't be a a condemning message or something that you cover up that conviction or walk out with heavy hands, but instead that you would see this message as an opportunity and a chance for you to turn, for you to change, for you to make Jesus the king of your kingdom. And that's the last way to, to live with Jesus as king is don't wait. Don't wait. Stop waiting. Don't harden your heart. Don't give up. This is an opportunity. As we think about life, life is filled with so many warnings and opportunities for us to recognize how this life isn't our end destination. This life isn't it. This life isn't fulfilling. This life is not enough. You know, whether it's health issues, whether it's the aging process and just seeing our limitations as life goes on, whether it's difficult things that come in life that disappoint us, whether it's relationships that break down because people hurt us and wrong us, that there are so many warnings and things that happen in our life that are an opportunity for God to get a hold of our attention and for us to respond and stop trying to control and rule our lives. Stop trying to be the king of our kingdom. Stop trying to pursue the kingdom here on earth without the king who made this place. And so I just wanna go to the back to the beginning of this passage, the first three words of this, this passage, Jesus says, hear another parable. Are you, are you hearing this? Are you listening? God wants you to hear what he is saying to you. The back of the beginning of this parable series, the first parable we studied was the parable of the soils. And Jesus ends that parable by saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Are your ears open to what God wants to speak to you? Listen. And then the book of Hebrews, which we're gonna begin studying it next week, says it this way. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart in rebellion. But our hearts are predisposed to reject God's authority. But today, if God is moving in your heart and stirring and pressing conviction upon you, do not cover that conviction, but respond and repent and give your life to Jesus as the savior and Lord of your life. Don't harden your heart, but soften your heart. Don't reject his authority, establish him as the authority. Don't wait, understand, listen, I don't know for you, but eternity is around the corner and it could be days or months or years, but this life is temporary and what kingdom are you living for? Hear this, Jesus came as savior, what an awesome thing. Jesus came to the world, God sent the savior, even though the nation of Israel and ultimately humans, we rejected his authority time and time again, killing the prophets, rejecting them, not repenting, but God sent Jesus as a sacrifice for our sins, saying, even though you've ignored and rejected my authority time and time again, I wanna give you another chance. 
And the awesome thing is that right now in this moment, that is God's heart towards you, a heart of patience and a heart of grace and arms that are open saying, if you would come and you receive me as savior and establish me as the Lord of your life, you will be saved, you will be healed, you will be forgiven. You have the promise of eternity. But the truth is, is that God's word says that Jesus will return. And when Jesus comes again, he is not coming as savior, but he is coming as judge. And it's the true reality that when Jesus comes again, the patience and the grace and the warnings and the opportunities will be spent. God's word says that every knee will bow and tongue confess that he is Lord, that he is King of Kings, that he is the ruler. And every knee is gonna bow whether willingly or against its will. And I just wanna ask you, will your knee bow to Jesus as King right now as an opportunity to do it willingly and to receive the benefit and the promise of the hope in this life and the promise of a future and eternity in heaven. Just give up your pursuit of the kingdom here on earth without the authority of the king and instead embrace the authority of the king with the promise of the future kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for today and I thank you for your word. I thank you for the, for the way that you speak, that every time you speak, it is timely You speak exactly what we need to hear. And sometimes we don't wanna hear it. Sometimes we're not ready. Sometimes we wanna hear a different message, but I just know that this is what we need to hear today. And God, I pray that we would soften our hearts. Lord, we we, we soften our hearts. We recognize the areas of our life where you are not the Lord of your life. And we just thank you that right now your heart is patient and gracious, and this is an opportunity. So even as we're gonna sing in a moment, that the Father's arms are open wide and Jesus is an amazing, wonderful savior, that we would just bend our knee to Jesus as Lord and make you the king of our lives, knowing that there is no kingdom without the king. And we want not just the kingdom that is promised in you, but we want to be your children and to be sons of God. Pray this all in Jesus' name.